Now you love that, that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's almost 100 years old. And, and you know that, I mean, I, I love that hymn. It, it just seems to evoke something in me. But, uh, but really the hymn writer, a guy called Thomas Chisholm, he wrote it almost 100 years ago. And really around the theme of in Lamentations, really where Jeremiah is, the destruction of Jerusalem, everything's falling apart. I mean, everything's gone to pot. And yet there's the faithfulness of God being proclaimed. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Um, he was a man who um, became a believer in his sort of mid to late 20s. And about 36, he entered the ministry. And yet he had to retire after about a year because of ill health. And lived a quite an ordinary life and with very little. Uh, he did write almost 2,000 poems and hymns. And, and, and somebody going through like circumstances like that could speak about the faithfulness of God. You know, the wonders, the blessings of God. It's not about everything going right in life. It really isn't. Uh, anyway, uh, sometimes the context for these hymns and songs that we sing are really significant. Uh, so t- today, <coughs> I want to talk a bit about uh, conflict and conflict resolution and uh, our being a, uh, a reconciling community. We're called to a ministry of reconciliation. That means we've got to deal with conflict and disconnect and walls and separation. In fact, I think the church ought to be a picture of what it means to be a reconciled community. We ought to be that city on a hill demonstrating what it's like to, to live amongst and to, to love well and to be reconciled to people who are very diverse and different from all sorts of backgrounds who frustrate the heck out of us and yet nonetheless we choose to love. We're not only meant to be a reconciled but a reconciling community. Our, our ministry flows out of our experience of reconciliation. At least it ought to. All right, I've, I've been on this planet now for a little over 60 years. Even just saying that is shocking. I've been married to Carol for over 40 years. Nothing shocking about that. It's wondrous. Uh, I've been a Christ follower for a little over 35 years. I've been in ordained ministry for over 26 years. And one thing I have concluded, conflict is inevitable. Conflict is a, an, an almost a necessary but a, a reality in life. Therefore, if we don't learn how to deal with it well, we are in trouble. Because all communities and all relationships have to deal with it because nobody's perfect. And actually, conflict can become really constructive and helpful in the growth and evolution. But though conflict is inevitable, resolution, healing, growth is far from inevitable. And many, many of us and many communities and many families get stuck and break up and fall apart. (coughs) You know, we're going to look at this... um, this quite incredible chapter on love that Paul writes. It's used in lots of places. It's used in, in marriages, weddings, rather, um, which is interesting. 
because if you really understand the context and what Paul is really saying about love, um, it, it's not always particularly relevant, and some people don't really understand what he's saying. But it's such, it's beautiful penmanship. I mean, the Holy Spirit authored something through Paul here that is quite remarkable. <coughs> and here was a community blessed with every spiritual blessing, shaped by the message of the cross. Paul resolved to know nothing amongst them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message. He says, I came with weakness and trembling, much fear. I feel a little bit of weakness and trembling myself. I've been in bed with the flu for most of the week, uh, but recovering. Uh, but he said he came looking for a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that's what was experienced in Corinth. And yet there's a tremendous amount of conflict which they weren't dealing well with. And that's why he wrote this chapter. To, um, to help them and to help them reorient themselves. Because there were quarrels. You see, the conflict had led to quarreling, fighting, division, all sorts of weird behavior. Even though they were not lacking in any spiritual gift. You see, having the gifts, having the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of God is no guarantee that there won't be conflict. <clears throat> and so, in all of our context, both within the community of faith and beyond, we have to learn how to take and use what God has given us for the healing. So, I've got a little uh, video clip I thought we'd start with. Let's, let's watch this. Okay, that was a bit sudden, wasn't it? We're going to see the rest of it later if there's time um, in terms of resolution. But I want us to understand that fundamental. It's about missing needs, you see. This is why I teach and try to encourage people to get a hold of needs. And that love is the sacrificial meeting of needs of another. And anticipating that others will do the same for us. Now, I think this... this this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, which comes between 12 and 14. 12, which is the problem of glossolalia, tongues, which was seen as the supreme gift. And 14 is about order in worship, where actually it's not the big thing for gathered worship. Prophecy is the revealed will of God, spoken in a language you can all understand. Uh, but it's about order, you see. And um, so I've got three dangers that I think we can see in this text. Um, the first one is the danger of irrelevancy. The danger, in fact at best, the danger of irrelevancy. At worst, it's something far worse. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In fact, Paul is saying, you are no better than the pagans. Because that's what they did. They would speak in tongues, they would, they would pray loudly, they'd make a bunch of noise and clash cymbals out on the streets to attract people to them and to ward off the demons. And Paul is saying, you're not to be like that. He's not denigrating the gift, he's already affirmed the value of the gift, but he's saying, if you're using it without love, it's nothing. Secondly, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries, knowledge, and have a faith that can move mountains. That sounds really great, doesn't it? We're actually drawn to people like that. We're intrigued. We flock to people. But Paul says, if I have all of that but not love, I am nothing. You see, the greatest revelation and prophetic ministry uh, the greatest faith and expressions of that, believing for, for things, if it does not lead to us loving one another, it means absolutely nothing. 
the text says. And then thirdly, if I give all I possess to the poor and, over my, my, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You see, this is what the world generally loves. Let's do some good things. Let's act for justice. Let's address the poverty and suffering in our world. Let's actually sacrifice things for the convictions that I hold. These are not bad things. But if I do them without love, I gain nothing. I can surrender my body to the flames, thinking I'm doing a great thing. But without love, it means nothing. It's almost shocking, isn't it? We should be a little shocked at that. Especially as we often elevate those things in our community. And again, don't hear me say that these things are bad in and of themselves. No, they're the gifts of God. But they're given that we might love one another. And without that, our religion, our spirituality is irrelevant None of us fundamentally are interested in a loveless religion or faith, especially not God. So where we have unresolved conflict that has led to disconnect in relationship, the holding of grudges, the avoidance of one another, this is not love. But it is often reality. We wrestle with these things. So what is Paul saying? What is this love thing? Well, if we jump to the bottom of our reading, and um, I'm just using the reading in the service sheet here. These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I think he's talking about love is fundamentally the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. That the love of the Father has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, he says in Romans But he also says in Colossians, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. So there we have it again, faith, hope and love. But it's their love for all the saints that shines through. Love is a big thing for Paul. First Thessalonians, another community. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. There they are again. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Faith, hope, and love. He's talking about God at work in our lives and amongst us as a community. But why is love the greatest? Why is love better than faith and hope? Aren't those things good as well? (coughs) Well, for one thing, in heaven we won't need faith and hope. Faith and hope are our response to God here upon the earth. But love is of God. Love is from God. Because God is love. That's why love is supreme. That is why religion or faith without love is irrelevant. So let's beware of just being busy with spiritual matters without addressing the importance of love. Second danger is the danger of self-protection. And this is a biggie because this is something we, we can find ourselves resorting to, often out of fear, but we want to avoid getting hurt, don't we? 
let's be honest. And so we seek to protect ourselves, even at the expense of connecting. I went to, uh, well, I mentioned before, I went to uh, Argentina once, and I visited a church there, uh, Rey de Reyes, King of Kings Church in Buenos Aires, and uh, they had a discipleship ministry there, and they used some curriculum, and one of the uh, items they would reflect on together was the sin of avoiding the cross. The sin, I thought, oh my goodness. Because they were trying to take seriously this call to be a people shaped, yes, by resurrection life, but you never get to resurrection without crucifixion. You see, Easter wasn't a once only. Creation is shot through with death and resurrection. Right now we're in spring, where we're experiencing resurrection after the seeming death of winter. But, but just as for Jesus, there was no resurrection without submission to the cross, neither is there for us. And that's what faith is about. It's about surrendering control. It's about even surrendering our own self-protection and trusting in the Father and His ability to raise us. That if I let go in this situation which seems pretty bad, I've got to believe there's something better coming that is outside of my control. That is resurrection. And I think Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting the love of God that he's come to know because really he's just describing the nature of God in his love. And what must or should be increasingly the characteristic of the church through the fruit of the Spirit's working in us as we take on the characteristics and nature of God. But he's contrasting that with a community that is struggling to grow up and in many ways failing to do so. You see, conflict is inevitable, but growth is not. Healing is not. We actually need a growth mindset. We need to realize that we don't see it all, know it all, have it all. And there's some things that need to change. I see you're all excited about that. This is not some mere abstract description of what love is. This is hard and fast, feet on the ground kind of life that love is meant to shape. And fundamentally, love is other-centered. God so loved that he gave. God demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's other-centered is love. That's why Paul says in Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. And, and, and at heart, self-protection is selfishness. It's, I've got to protect myself. Well, anyway, I'll let that rest. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, now we all have needs, but also for the interests of others. So it's through our humility, by setting aside our needs in order to be able to see and focus upon others, that we express love. And what's this love like? Well, it's suffers long, as the authorized version says. It's long-suffering. It's patient. It means it lives with struggle and without immediate resolution. And it's kind. It's patient and it's kind, which is both a passive thing and an active thing. In patience we wait, and in kindness we act and give. That's what love does. Others-centered. 
And there's a need for both of those things to be expressed in our lives and in our community if we are going to resolve conflict well. And then he, he lists eight knots. <laughs> it's sometimes harder to define love by what it's not than what it is. But nevertheless, these things are all familiar to us. And what is interesting is the knots that Paul is talking about are actually, <laughs> not the knots we tie in, in, in a piece of rope. These are, the, these are the actually characteristics that he's witnessing in this community. He's actually described this stuff already in his letter and now he's summarizing it to say, hey, you know you call to this love thing? Well, it's not that that you are doing. That's why I'm always tickled when people use this at weddings. But nevertheless, it's helpful too as love does not envy. Well, back in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, he says, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? One says, I'm of Paul. Another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? You see, we love celebrities. But the trouble is, we, we set ourselves up in opposition to one another because of that. We think so-and-so is right, so you must be wrong. And we think, well, so-and-so has got it all together, and I'm envious of that. We're jealous of one another. He says, that's not love. Love does not envy, but, but, but envy and jealousy create rivalry. And, that, and in that place, our words, our zeal, in fact, can become quite destructive if it sets us in opposition to one another. Love is not puffed up, being arrogant, proud. Well, back in chapter 4, now some are puffed up, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. You see, it's not about human ability and human ingenuity and human pride, but it's in weakness and trembling and dependence upon the power of God. For we know, verse chapter 8, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You see, here were people who were thinking of themselves better than others because of their knowledge and their understanding and the insight that they had. But who's the focus in all of that? I am, of course. This isn't love. Love is other-centered. Love does not seek its own way. As I'm going through this, I'm inviting you to think about the application of this when it comes to conflict that we're having. Uh, whether it's with our spouse, our children, the people we're sitting amongst, the people we work with, the community we live in, it's all the same. Because this is how people find themselves. Love does not seek its own way. It's not demanding in that sense. Chapter 10. And here he's writing to them because he's aghast that at the, at the communion time, at the time of table fellowship, the very heart of our Christian worship when we're pondering and reflecting upon the self-sacrificial love of Christ. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Because people were just doing their own thing. They were even eating before everyone got there at the love feast. There was little or no concern for the other. It was a self-fest. At the communion table of all places, this is the community that is blessed beyond all others with every spiritual blessing and yet is immature and in conflict. And so these words that Paul is sharing about what love is not 
are simply characteristics of this church fellowship that Paul is, is observing in Corinth. And, and as Paul's going through that, I can, he's just nailing it with them. <laughs> not because he's condemning them, not because he's writing them off, which we're not meant to do. It's because he's, he's wanting to help them see and to change and to grow. He always has hope for that. Because love perseveres. But he's saying, do you see yourselves? Do you see how you're acting? And they were rooted in this emphasis upon the self and the protection of the very thing that should actually be laid aside to help us center upon others. And very often we too, when we're in that place of pain, when we've been upset by somebody, when things just aren't going well, we can too can retreat into our own world and our own place. And this isn't, I'm not saying here that we are to be a doormat to one another. I'm talking about in the, the general context of where there's a mutual commitment and desire for something. Yes, there are exceptions where one is just totally uncommitted and unconcerned for the well-being of another. And there's a place to draw boundaries. But in most situations, generally, we're committed to something, but we're losing our way and we're retreating to protect ourselves and focus upon ourselves. And I think it's at that point we've got to come back to the Easter narrative, back to the reality that death and life are two sides of the same coin, as one person put it. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have love without death. Something has to die. And it's about seeing myself as the center. Third danger is the danger of perfectionism. Do we really think that's possible? Now this community highly valued the gifts, especially uh, tongues, prophecy, knowledge. They, they lived in a culture where sort of human knowledge and ingenuity and philosophy uh, was significant. And here now as a church, they were getting hold of something through what the Spirit was doing. But Paul says this, this thing that you highly value is very temporary and passing away. Be careful what you're setting your stock against and what you're valuing as central and as important. Beware the danger of fanaticism. In the New Testament, there is a tension between the already of the kingdom, that God has begun something, begun his reign, and yet the not yet of it being fully accomplished. And, and we live in the tension. It's like we live between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But we've had a foretaste through the down payment of the Spirit but it's not complete yet. And so we live with a tension of imperfection. And so we will create tension in ourselves and our community if we expect perfection in one another. It's not available. And that's why love endures. And love has to be central. Love helps us deal with the partial nature of the now. It's what protects us ultimately. And it protects us against the imperfections of one another. Not so that we would retreat and avoid, so that we would continue to engage and risk vulnerably. And I'm challenged by the, the, the already but the not yet of the spiritual life. I wish it were different, but it is our reality. So in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, 
And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. That must have been a bit of a blow to the Corinthian ego when they felt there was, you know, they, they've been blessed with their spiritual blessing. What are you talking about, Paul? You, we've, we've kind of got it. And he's saying, no. You actually have very little. I can't even talk to you as spiritual people yet because you haven't learned the true meaning of this. So we can be around the, the, the miraculous, around the manifestations of the gifts and be very carnal and mere babes in Christ. We don't need perfection, we need maturity, which is a different thing in terms of its application for our lives now. And this is the ultimate message around love. This is the ultimate reason for the giving of the Spirit and for the gifts. Not that we would use them in some kind of childish way. And he's going to go on in chapter 14 to develop, therefore, how you use gifts in a mature, loving way. But we've got to realize the value of these things. You know, when um, children are given gifts at Christmas, especially really young children, and you're so excited about this gift that you've uh, lovingly planned for, paid significant money for, anticipating the look on their faces when they open the gift and get to enjoy it, and all they do is play with the wrapping paper. Have you ever been in that situation? It's kind of hilarious, isn't it, really, until you weep over how much you spent. I thought, I, I may as well have just bought a roll of wrapping paper and saved myself. But it's like, you know, almost as a child, we, we're not in a position to receive and fully appreciate and understand what has been given to us. And that can be the case with spiritual gifts, if love is not central. So, let's watch the, the last bit of the video, and then I'll close us out. And we can help. We know a man who can help. By the way, that's not Peter Klenner. <laughs> Sorry, some of you won't know who Peter Klenner is. He's, he's my bishop, actually. But he's an Aussie. Um, so a large part of this is, can I put myself in a place where I can begin to hear and appreciate what needs are being missed in this person who may be upset with me and not feel the great need to justify myself, to protect myself, to complain about my needs that are missing. And love is like this, you see. Love, love helps us to become a non-anxious presence to one another, that we can actually we can rest in patience. Remember, love is patient in order to express kindness and believe that there will be a time when the other party will too be patient and be kind towards us. But that's the goal we've got to get to. And that comes out of, I think... A, a deep, profound awareness that God is like that with us. I don't think there's any other solution to this. You know, this isn't something we just drum up. This is something as we get a revelation of the sheer mercy of God expressed through the crucifixion and what he's done for us. In, in his deep desire to be reconciled to us and want us to experience the blessing of connection. And for us to even appropriate the blessings of the cross and the resurrection, we have to humble ourselves. We have to be broken over the fact that we've lived for ourselves. And we have to repent by changing our thinking. We need a growth mindset that says, I haven't got it together and I'm on the wrong path. And I'm actually fighting against God. 
and turn and receive his mercy. And then we repeat that kind of for the rest of our lives with him, but also with one another. And I think the journey of cross and resurrection means that we take that kind of risk with one another. Because that's the risk God took with us. And that is risky, isn't it? That is hard. That conjures up for many of us fear. Because God I can kind of trust. Because remember, we've sung about his faithfulness. People, well, well, here we're back again to the tension. The tension of the already and the not yet. The tension that just as you are a beneficiary of grace and mercy, so is the person you're upset with. None of us is any better than the other. This is not a comparison thing. This is not about one being right and the other wrong. The moment we're in that, we're back to envy and jealousy and we're more concerned with ourselves and whether or not we're right than the, the relationship. And God, in his love, invites us to be concerned first and foremost with connection and the relationship. And, you know, our ability to engage in resolving conflict by being ministers of grace and therefore reconciliation are often hindered because we've just, we've just seen things go bad and we've observed conflict go really bad because it's led to quarrel and fighting. I remember coaching a, a guy who was, he wasn't, he wasn't actually that young, he was probably in the early 50s, and he would tell me the story about conflict in his household between his mother and his father. He would talk about sitting once at a meal table and his mother took a knife and stabbed her husband in the leg in front of the kids because they were, they were having a bit of conflict. I mean, what does a child do with that? He told of another time when uh, his dad was at the, at the sink doing the dishes and his mother came up behind him and set fire to his shirt. And the dad turned around and threw her across the room. What does a child do with that? I don't know. I mean, I've heard so many stories of the most horrific fighting and conflict that children have observed growing up. And, and I wonder how they function and live semi-normal lives. And it, it makes me realize how blessed I was um, but we've all experienced varying degrees of conflict and we've seen things not work out well. And so we're often shaped by that than truly shaped through faith, hope and love in death and resurrection, which is the only way. And we've got to risk death. So if we're to be a both a reconciled and a reconciling community, we've got to be a community shaped by the cross. And our relationships have to be shaped by the cross. And our small groups and our ministries and our outreach like Jesus that's the path so would you like to stand because I want to pray for us